We're going to do a little liturgical cheating today. Um, ordinarily, we read and think about the story of the wise men on Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany is the twelfth day after Christmas. This is where the twelve days of Christmas songs comes from, right? It's the twelfth day after Christmas, and the closest Sunday thereof is Epiphany Sunday. And ordinarily, that's when we talk about the Epiphany, the majestic manifestation of God, particularly to the wise men who represent the Gentiles, right, the non-Jews. Um, but I, I think the story of the wise men really helps um, with this Scripture in Ephesians this morning. So I want to talk about wise men today, and I just apologize for those of you who are going to be uh, disappointed about Epiphany Sunday not being wise men focused, okay? I know there's a lot of folks worried about that. Um, so uh, you know the story of the wise men. Uh, I'm going to tell it briefly, um, but we, we did our... Um, on Christmas Eve, we did our little Kahoot, the, the trivia game, and there's a lot of stuff that we associate with the story that's not necessarily there, right? So maybe you remember, but uh, on Christmas Eve, we were reminded that the wise men um, might have ridden camels, but the camels are not mentioned. Um, we were, are reminded that there might be three wise men, but the Bible doesn't say that. It only lists three gifts, right? The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And we were reminded that um, while we think of the wise men as showing up on Christmas morning because that's what happens in the church nativity plays, in fact, the Bible suggests they probably came um, months or even up to a year and a half later. Um, so, um, knowing all of that, remember this story. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, wise men, ooh, and the word doesn't say wise men, it actually says magi. Right? The, the Greek word is magi. We're translating it wise men. Uh, that's not bad, but magi is short for magician, right? Which is not a positive thing in the Jewish world, right? Because the Old Testament forbids magic and sorcery. Uh, magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened in all Jerusalem with him. And they call together the priests, and they find out, um, the Scripture says in Micah, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Then, verse 7, Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me words, so I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Okay, such an interesting story for us. So a, a few things additionally we need to point out as we read this. The first is, we don't really know exactly who the Magi are. They come from the east, we're told. Um, so that means um, maybe they are descendants of some of the Persian philosophers and soothsayers and magicians of which Daniel was once a part. That's just conjecture, but it's a cool idea. Could be right. Um, we know that they have enough status that the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel rather, receives them. So Herod welcomes them and talks to them. Uh, and um, that they have enough wealth, they can bring very expensive gifts. Of course, gold, uh, frankincense, and myrrh being incense and spice uh, of great value. 
Um, but what's most interesting about this story is that they show up at Jesus' home, and uh, a, a peasant's home, and these people of great power and wealth and status um, and influence kneel down and they worship Jesus. Um, they, they pay Him homage. They recognize Him as uh, of greater than themselves. Uh, and they choose uh, to seek and be subject to Christ. And, and as I read the, the fifth chapter of Ephesians, especially that, that first 20 verses, uh, I think this is exactly what Paul is calling us to do and to be. He's calling us to seek and be subject to Christ. Uh, and I know this sounds super basic, but unfortunately it's not, right? We, everybody struggles with this. Um, in fact, pastors struggle with this quite a bit. And I read um, at the end of November a really tragic story about a pastor in New York City. Yeah, his name was Carl Lentz, and he was the pastor of Hillsong Church, which is a really big congregation. Uh, and um, Carl Lentz uh, had not only a large a number of members in his church. He had all these celebrities who'd come to his church like Justin Bieber and Chris Pratt and Vanessa Hudgens. Uh, and he had something like 500,000 people following him online. Um, so just kind of a big name and guy and deal. Uh, and it came out that he had been having an affair and cheating on his wife and um, had been going on for some time. And it just exploded, right? And his... Um, church let him go, and his wife was a pastor there, and she ended up leaving, and it was just tragic. And it made all the headlines. And, and as it did, I thought, um, you know, this is a really sad story, but it's not an original one. Um, and unfortunately, we don't always seek and be subject to Christ. Um, so I'm reading a really uh, helpful book for me right now. It's by a guy named Peter Scazzaro, and it's called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And, and he says, um, when I first became a Christian, I fell in love with Jesus. I cherished alone time with Him while reading the Bible and praying. Yet almost immediately, the activity of my life, doing for Jesus, began to eclipse the contem contemplative dimension of my life, being with Jesus. I learned early on about the importance of daily devotions to nurture my relationship with Christ, but as I entered ministry leadership, a daily quiet time was simply not enough. It wasn't long before I was engaged in more activity for God than my being with God could sustain. Uh, and I, I think this might have been the challenge for Carl, and I think it's the challenge for us very often. I want to read this again. The emotionally unhealthy leader is someone who operates in a continuous state of emotional and spiritual deficit, lacking emotional maturity and a being with God sufficient to sustain their doing for God. So I come back to the wise men for a minute, and I think, um, why didn't the wise men just take all those valuables, right, and sell all um, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and, and give that money to the poor uh, because Jesus is God and He doesn't really need it. Why didn't they say, um, you know, Jesus, we were so busy um, working in our soup kitchen and making sure that the homeless had a place to stay tonight and um, making sure people had clothes and visiting the people in jail and taking care of the sick that we, we couldn't make it all the way to, to Bethlehem to see your birth, but we want to let you know that we're thinking about you while we're doing all these things. Right? On some level, the, the, the wise men get, right, that 
None of that is going to ultimately have value if it's separated from seeking Jesus. And I think this is a real challenge for us. I think it's easy for us to get so caught up in in doing things for God that we forget that our goal is to be imitators of God as beloved children, to live as children of the light, uh, to be filled with the Spirit, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make melody in our hearts to the Lord and give thanks to God the Father at all times in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to seek and be subject to Christ. We need more Jesus. Now, you may be saying, okay, that's nice, Jim, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not on church staff. Maybe I'm not even an elder or a deacon, and um, I'm not sure how that relates to me. I don't feel like I'm doing so much for God. I don't have time to be with God. Um, But I would suggest that um, every one of us, especially in our culture, is consumed with the doing Right? We are always trying to do more, and maybe that's in the church as a volunteer, or maybe that's uh, as a parent or a grandparent trying to raise our kids or our grandkids. Uh, maybe it's as um, our career, which demands so much of our time, or maybe it's as a friend or a family member. Um, if we are always doing, especially, and this is a, a weird problem, but especially if we're trying to do for Jesus, right? If we're trying to raise our kids in the Christian faith, to share our faith with our coworkers, to serve in our role at work in the way that Christ would have us serve, to love our friends as Christ would love them, and we're not investing in our time with God, our life will be unbalanced at best and destructive at worst because you can't give away what you don't have. Uh, And you will give away only the things that you already have. And so if you are filled with the love and the Spirit and the presence of Christ and uh, investing in time with Him, then you'll give that away. And if you are filled with stress and frustration and exhaustion and um, overwhelmingly busyness, that's what you're going to give away to. And so I think this is the challenge for us as the people of God is like the wise men, we are called to humble ourselves and to make knowing Jesus a first priority in our lives, not an also-ran, optional, when I can get around to it sort of thing. And if you want to think about how to do that, how to seek Christ and be subject to Him, um, then I think this chapter in Ephesians has fantastic suggestions about how we can go about doing that. And some of it is about making our lives subject to Christ, right? There are all kinds of guidelines that Paul gives us uh, to avoid uh, obscene and vulgar and silly talk, right? To not be greedy, to not be a fornicator, to um, not do things in secret that we wouldn't be comfortable having done in public. But Paul also says, in addition to that, um, seek Christ, right? Worship Him. Read the Scriptures. Sing the hymns. um, Be consumed with gratitude for what He's done. Live in love as Christ loved us. Live as children of the light. He says really the same thing over and over and over again. Invest in your time with God, right? Um, and, and the more you are trying to do for God, the more you need to invest in Him and in your time with Him. You can't give away what you don't have. By the way, uh, in this season, as we think about moving forward from me to we, uh, this call to seek Christ and be subject to Him first 
isn't just relevant for us as individuals. It's relevant for us as the people of God uh, and as communities. I always wonder what kind of Christians are we producing uh, in our church, in our country, in our world. Cazero has uh, an example of um, what happens if communities are insufficient in their investment in knowing Christ. And he says, uh, in the seventh century, the church in the uh, uh, A.D., the church in Arabia and North Africa appeared prosperous. They had a rich history going back 700 years. They were theologically sophisticated, boasted well-known leaders and bishops, and exercised considerable influence in the culture. Nevertheless, Islam advanced over these Christian churches in a very short time. Most church historians agree the church as a whole was beset by a superficial spirituality that was unable to withstand the intense assault of this new religion. Local churches were divided from each other over minor doctrinal points, refusing to recognize the presence of Jesus in those with whom they differed. They failed to translate the Scriptures into Arabic, the language of the people. As a result, while attendance was strong and financial giving stable, the people were not grounded in Jesus. Their lack of a spiritually solid foundation as churches led to a rapid collapse under the weight and pressure of an advancing intolerant Islam. As a church and as individuals, uh, as we come to this Christmas season, it is overwhelmingly important that we uh, choose to seek Christ and be subject to Him as individuals and as a community to recognize uh, that if we want to be a people that have the ability to transform this world for the sake and the story of Jesus, we cannot do that on our own strength. Right? You, you cannot be an evangelist or a teacher or a servant of God without loving God and being filled with the Spirit of God. And so it is the first and most important step of being the people of God to seek Christ and be subject to Him. Uh, the, the second half of, of this reading today in Ephesians chapter 5 um, is the, the other side of the coin. It's the call to be subject to one another that we get in Ephesians 5, 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, and here I want to come back to the wise men again um, because they reveal a, a dichotomy, a, a, an inversion that I think Paul is focusing on in Ephesians 5 and a little bit of Ephesians 6. So it's not a surprise to us that when wealthy, influential, powerful people show up in Jerusalem, everybody's upset, right, and surprised and don't know what to do. It's not a surprise to us that um, even King Herod, who's king of a, of a small kingdom on the frontier of two great empires, is nervous when ambassadors from one of those empires show up and start talking about a foreign king. Right? Because powerful people tend to make other people nervous. Right? Other people tend to respect the powerful. Uh, but what is extraordinary about this story uh, is that um, the powerful people show respect to the peasants. Right? That they show up in this home in Bethlehem, and rather than saying, um, we are people of influence and affluence, uh, our mere presence and voice made the entire city of Jerusalem tremble and fear, they 
The Bible says they, they kneel down, right? They fall. Actually, the Greek word says fall. They fall to the ground in front of this tiny peasant baby. And they humble themselves. They pay homage. They worship him. And they give him the best things that they have to offer. See, it's not a surprise um, that the powerless are subject to the powerful. It is a surprise when the powerful are subject to the powerless. I think that's what's happening in this story in Ephesians. The instructions that we get here are part of what we often call the household codes. Show up several times in Scripture. It's a fairly common motif in ancient writing where households, remember a household is not just a nuclear family, but usually a, a larger group of families um, where the father is the absolute authority in this culture. Um, the household of father and uh, wife, of um, parents and children, of masters and slaves are all mentioned here in Ephesians. And, and it's not a surprise. It would have been culturally normative to tell wives to submit to their husbands, culturally normative to tell children to submit to their parents or slaves to submit to their masters. But it is not culturally normative to tell husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. It's not normative to tell parents, as Paul will in chapter 6, um, to not provoke their children, right? Who cares? You're the parents. Now, apparently, we do care. Christ cares. It's not normative to tell masters um, to love their slaves because you have a master in heaven. And in this inversion, we get a reflection of Jesus, right, who is the one who has literally all the power, who gives it up and becomes powerless, becomes subject to us. And so we are called to do as He has done. Uh, by the way, just a, a, a quick excursus on this conversation about husbands and wives, because it's an it's a interesting and important one. It deserves more time than we're going to give it this morning. Uh, but as we've said before, it's important to remember uh, that in the New Testament times, in the context where this is written, marriage was very different than we understand it today. Right? So, for example, in the New Testament times, uh, women, if they were allowed to live at birth, they weren't always, were minimally educated, could not be witnesses in a court of law, could not adopt children or make a contract, could not own or inherit property, were seen as less intelligent and less moral, the source of sin, and a continual temptation to men. Um, they lived their entire lives in uh, Jewish and much of Greco-Roman culture under a male authority at all times. So, uh, in that context, right, what is said uh, about women submitting to their husbands is relatively tame, and what is said about men loving their wives is relatively dramatic. Just as we don't go into chapter 6 and say, oh, here's some good instructions about how to have healthy slavery, so too we don't go to chapter 5 and say, oh, we have to apply the first century principles on marriage exactly as they were then now. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not suggesting we can't use this to help us think about our Christian lives together as husbands and wives, we can, um, but applying it without any thought might miss the point of the passage, which is to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is about more than just respecting each other's rights. It means intentionally elevating the other above myself as an act of love for Jesus, or at the very least, getting down on the level of the lowest person. I think I've made it clear over the years that I am a fan of the TV show The West Wing, and there is a Christmas episode of The West Wing called Noel. 
um, that tells the story of uh, Josh Lyman's um, discovery that he has PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, from an experience where he was shot. And um, in the course of the episode, he slowly discovers this is a reality. His coworkers recognize what's going on more than he does. He's in denial. Finally, his boss, Leo, uh, has a, a counselor come into the White House to, to meet with him and help him start talking through his, his issue. And then Leo sits around to see how that will go. And I want to just share with you the little clip of what happens when Josh leaves. How'd it go? Did you wait around for me? How'd it go? He thinks I may have an eating disorder. Josh. And uh, fear of rectangles. That's not weird, is it? I didn't cut my hand on a glass. I broke a window in my apartment. This guy's walking down the street when he falls in the hall. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, Hey, you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hall and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, Father, I'm down in this hole, can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hall and moves on. And a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. Long as I got a job, you got a job, you understand? I love that story uh, about a physician a pastor and a friend. Uh, and uh, the, the Christian life to me seems to be encapsulated in that a little bit, um, that our world uh, has a race to the top, but Christ calls us uh, to a race to the bottom, uh, to live thinking not about what I deserve, but about how I can serve. Uh, and I think about the way Jesus models this so beautifully from being born as a peasant's child in uh, home in Bethlehem, to washing the feet of his disciples, to dying on a cross between two thieves. Jesus models for us what it means to be subject to one another. And I think that in a world that is increasingly concerned with defending its own rights and turf and territory, having a people who are committed not to what they deserve but how they can serve is a revolutionary thing. Uh, I, I think this is relevant for us as individuals. I think that we are called as individuals to reflect on where we can jump in the hole with someone, right? Where we can humble ourselves in order to serve and elevate and love another, to be subject to another. Um, but I think this is also relevant for us as a people. And I, I had two um, beautiful experiences in the last three weeks of churches committing to being a people who are subject to another. One of those was my former church in Virginia, where my parents still attend. Um, uh, it's in Norfolk, Virginia, and in Norfolk there's something called the Norfolk Emergency Shelter Team, which is an overflow homeless um, housing operation that happens in the winter months. There's a large homeless population in, in Norfolk, and 
the normal shelters are overwhelmed when it gets cold. So many years ago, decades ago, all of the churches and a number of the synagogues in that city got together and they coordinated this plan where every church takes one week and invites the homeless population that can't get into other shelters to come and stay in their church. And so this can be 60 to 100 people. They serve dinner uh, and then they house them over the evening. And of course, volunteers have to stay all night long to help and be available as needed. Then they serve breakfast in the morning and then folks um, go off about their day and they come back that following night. Uh, my, my church in Norfolk had always taken Christmas week because it was the hardest week to do and it was a larger church and we could pull it off. However, in this COVID pandemic season, um, understandably, some of those rules changed. One of those was that they were required to have six feet between every person um, staying in one of their facilities. Well, unfortunately, of all of the many, many churches and synagogues involved in NEST, my former church was the only one who had enough physical space to house a hundred people all spread six feet apart from each other. So instead of taking the week of Christmas, they took the month of Christmas. Uh, and so for four weeks um, throughout December, they served dinner and hosted a hundred people overnight and served breakfast. And then um, volunteers went home and then got up and did the same thing the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And the hope was that by the end of that process, um, some amazing thing would have happened and things could change and somebody else could help in January. So two weeks ago, uh, it became clear that wasn't going to happen. And uh, the elders of that church had to make a decision. They had already done above and beyond what anyone ever would have expected them to do, right? Four times as much as anyone else could do or would have ever done. Um, and yet they decided um, that Christ had called them to be subject to these folks who had no place to go. And so um, a week and a half ago, they decided to continue to host those homeless folks for three more months um, in their building. And I can't even imagine the logistics of that alone. Um, but I wonder how the city reflects on a church that says, yeah, we have the right to our own building and the right to get a good night's sleep and the right to save all the money that we're spending on food and the right, but, but our rights are what we care about. Right? We want to be subject to you out of reverence to Christ. Um, our church had an experience over the last few days that was super meaningful for me as well. You know, of course, that we ordinarily do a Christmas dinner event, which is a, a huge meal on Christmas Day. We serve uh, a, a wonderful turkey dinner. In fact, Christmas Eve usually smells like turkey, right, in our whole building because there are those roasting pans all over the place um, giving us this delightful, um, delicious smell. Um, about four weeks ago, our mission committee got together and said, we just don't know how to do it this year. Right? We, we want to do it. Of course we want to do it. But the logistics in a COVID year of serving all that food and having people into our building, we just couldn't figure it out. And so our committee said, you know what? We'd really like to do it, but we're just, we're just not gonna. But one person in our church kept saying, you know, I can't stop thinking about all the folks we usually serve. And we, we started getting phone calls, as we always do on Christmas, with folks saying, hey, are you doing a meal? And, of course, we had to say no. And um, this one person kept saying, hey, are you getting phone calls? Yeah. Um, and she just couldn't let it go. 
And so uh, she found a way. Uh, She got her family to come and do all the cooking as a family. Um, We gave up on the turkeys and we did pre-cooked hams. And so Christmas Eve didn't smell as delicious, but there was still just as much food. Uh, Like 20 or 30 of you families agreed to uh, deliver, and we did a delivery-only meal for 168 people uh, on Christmas Day in a COVID pandemic world, which I think is incredible. And I got to tell you, um, how many people who called in and asked when we were doing a meal, and when I could say yes, were just overwhelmed with gratitude and joy and thankfulness. And I thought, um, you know, it wasn't convenient or easy or even necessary. Um, It would have been so much easier just to say, not this year, but not this church, because we'd rather be in the hole with people. Um, than standing up and throwing down prayers and prescriptions. So I want to ask you, um, where are you and where are we called to be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ? And how do we make sure that in our desire to be a church that gets in the hole with people, that we do it out of the strength of our love for Jesus and not just because that's what good people do or because we feel morally obligated, but because we are so filled with the Spirit and the love and the peace and the joy of Jesus that we are living as children of light. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was a jump-in-the-hole kind of Savior. And when God saw us fall... He didn't just walk by. He said, I'm going to get in there. And and we're not called to be the Savior. We're just called to be the wise men. We're just called to be those who show up and seek and make ourselves subject to Christ and then out of reverence to Him are subject to one another. And then we too will be children of light. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.